This is an audio cast of the Frontline segment, Outbreak at NIH, broadcast October 14th on PBS. The correspondent is David Hoffman. Tonight on Frontline, when the bacteria came back, did it surprise you? That more than surprised me. I mean, that was devastating. The NIH thought they had stopped a deadly antibiotic-resistant superbug until it turned up in patient 19. I remember the doctor saying, we discovered Trihouse KPC and said, we're going to move him to the isolation unit. This is a pretty serious infection. This is one of those superbugs. Outbreak at NIH begins right now. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Wincoat Foundation. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler. Nowhere is the threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria more urgent than in hospitals, with their heavy reliance on antibiotics and their population of vulnerable patients. There have been problems in hospitals around the country, and over the past decade, hospitals in the New York City area have become the epicenter of a particularly resistant and deadly superbug. It's called KPC. It lives in the digestive system and can spread its resistance to other bacteria. And patients who get it in one hospital can carry the bacteria to other hospitals. That happened in a story we first told in 2013, when one of the nation's most prestigious hospitals, the Clinical Center at the National Institutes of Health, found itself battling a major KPC outbreak. It began in the summer of 2011, when a patient with a rare lung disease was transferred from a New York City hospital to be treated at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. She was carrying KPC. It was the first case of it the NIH had ever seen. Deputy Director Dr. David Henderson. We immediately went on high alert, the equivalent of uh, hospital epidemiology, DEFCON 5, tried to implement as many things as we could think of uh, at the time uh, to prevent any further spread of the organism in the hospital. Dr. Tara Palmore. The patient was placed in what we call enhanced contact isolation, which means everybody who went in the room, including visitors, had to wear gloves and gowns. But this was the intensive care unit, where patients are very sick and highly vulnerable. Check your blood sugar, okay? It's the kind of place where the bacteria can spread with ease. People are very busy and there are a lot of things going on. Patients get very sick very quickly and require intervention. The bacteria can be spread on the hands. 
They can be spread on pieces of equipment uh, that might go from patient to patient, so you have to be really cautious. Their efforts to contain KPC appeared to work. When other ICU patients were tested for KPC... We found nothing. So at that point, we thought that there had not been spread of the bacteria. The New York patient ultimately recovered and was discharged after four weeks in the hospital. We really felt like we had dodged a bullet. But then, a big surprise. Five weeks later, unexpectedly... Could you do me a favor? Could you get me a, just a, a tube fixator for out of the RT closet? A KPC bacteria yeah. turned up in a respiratory culture. And with it, yeah. a mystery. How this could have spread from the first patient to the second patient. They were not in the ICU at the same time. They didn't have the same caregivers. They didn't have the same equipment. So initially we thought uh, it might be possible that this was a second introduction of yet another KPC organism. I was extremely concerned because the infections with these bacteria had a high mortality rate. As they began to investigate, searching for KPC on equipment and testing the patients yet again, they realized the problem was much bigger. We started finding other patients in the intensive care unit to whom the bacteria had spread. They had an outbreak. The KPC was spreading. The patients were getting sicker. And antibiotics weren't working. And we tried combinations of five, six antibiotics. We tried making oral antibiotics into intravenous antibiotics. We even got an investigational antibiotic from a pharmaceutical company. An experimental one, a test one. A, an experimental antibiotic, and that also did not work. Desperate to contain the outbreak, the hospital took unprecedented steps. They created a separate ICU for KPC patients, brought in robots to disinfect empty rooms. ICU nurse Nancy Ames. Had monitors here reminding us to wash our hands, built a whole wall up in, in the other side. We moved every patient in the ICU, completely cleaned it, moved patients back in. Um, and no matter what we did, the bacteria was still it was still spreading. We didn't know what was going on. With the hospital in crisis, genetic researchers in Building 49 next door were scrambling to figure out how the KPC was spreading. Geneticist Julie Segre. We had now gotten to the point where they were identifying a patient a week, and it was not clear how these patients might be related to each other. This bacteria has the capacity by comparing the, the DNA in the KPC samples, the researchers made an alarming discovery. Silent carriers, people who were carrying the bacteria but showing no signs of infection, were spreading the KPC. As they urgently searched for silent carriers throughout the rest of the hospital, their worst nightmare came true. The outbreak had spread beyond the ICU. That's a very scary moment. Suddenly, it's in the general patient population. The staff was in a panic. As they looked on helplessly, patients began to die.
there were few options left. Dr. Henderson. Dr. Gallen uh, asked me if uh, we needed to close the hospital or if we needed to close the hospital to admissions. Ultimately, we decided not to close the hospital, uh, but it was a possibility. Absolutely. Instead, they expanded testing hospital-wide and isolated all those found with KPC. Finally, six months after patient one first arrived, the outbreak appeared to have ended almost as suddenly as it had begun. Dr. Palmore. We started to be a little more optimistic. And we continued all of our aggressive measures to control the bacteria in the hospital. But by then, 18 patients had been infected with KPC and six people had died from it. No patients or their families ever came forward to talk about their experience. But after seeing our story, one family did. Not long after the scare at the NIH subsided, in Wilmer, Minnesota, 19-year-old Troy Stulen was recovering from a bone marrow transplant he'd received at NIH months earlier. Troy's father, Larry. It went very well. He started recovering, and then one morning he woke up and he had blisters all over his body. We called the doctors at the NIH, and they were concerned that maybe he would get infection in these blisters. So they wanted him to, to come back out there again. Troy's mother, Marilyn. It was a huge relief to be back there again. I thought of it as being one of the, you know, best of the best um, hospitals in the nation. And I felt very comfortable being there. When we got there, he was in a lot of pain. And so they finally gave him some medicine for the pain. But, you know, we're just thinking, okay, this is just 10 days, you know, short term. You know, they'll get this figured out and then we'll go back home again, you know, not a big deal. Troy had suffered health problems from birth. The most serious was a genetic disorder called chronic granulomatous disease. As he reached his teens, Troy's illness was causing serious gastrointestinal problems, and his doctors recommended he undergo a difficult and risky bone marrow transplant at NIH. And Troy was totally on board about it. He said, if I have the transplant and I'm cured, I win because I'm healthy and I'm normal. If I die, I win because I go to heaven. Troy's transplant actually took place at NIH during the KPC outbreak, but he was on another floor and unaffected by it. Now that he was back, his weakened state left him dangerously susceptible to infections. As the days turned into months, his complications worsened. As the months progressed, they just couldn't figure out what to do with his skin. He was in ICU um, probably four or five times. Yeah. It was kind of a balancing act that whole time, you know, how to, how to properly treat him, whether he needed platelets, whether he needed blood, you know, whether he needed more steroids. Basically, it got to the point, it was like, okay, what's next? You know, what's the next bad thing that's gonna happen? Then, in August 2012, the doctors brought some shocking news. Troy tested positive for KPC. It was eight months after the hospital thought the outbreak was over. When uh, the, the bacteria came back, did it surprise you? NIH geneticist Julie Segre. That more than surprised me. I mean, that was devastating. It, it sort of brought back all of the emotions of the fall a feeling as though we finally have the situation under control and then a new patient being identified. 
I remember the doctor coming in and saying, we discovered Troy has uh, KPC and said, we're gonna move him across the hall uh, to the isolation unit. I kind of Googled it and stuff like that and, and learning that, you know, hey, this is a pretty serious infection. You know, this is one of those super bugs. Marilyn just said, you know, I'm really scared about this infection. He has a low immune system. Uh, we're in a hospital. Yeah, it was very scary. It's like, you know, this, we've got a lot of things going against us here. But he was doing okay with it, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe he'll be fine. He had acquired other infections along the way, but they always had antibiotics that were used, and, and he was able to get through those infections. At first, Troy was put on a powerful but toxic antibiotic called colistin, and it appeared to be working. He was testing negative for the infection and his kidney was working. It seemed like things were heading in the right direction. I was actually heading back home again, and ha literally a half hour before I left the hospital, the chaplain and the nurse came and asked Marilyn and I if they could meet with us. They just said, you know, you need to start preparing to talk to your son about dying, the possibility of dying. They said, we've seen this infection before and it doesn't always end well. Sure enough, you know, a few days later, the doctor said that the infection has mutated and that the cholestin is no longer being effective. It wasn't long after that that his vital signs started to fail. They had exhausted all, all options and there was nothing more they could do. All they could do was keep him comfortable at that point. On September 7, 2012, the family gathered in Troy's room in the ICU. It was a long day. It's very hard to watch your son daily starting to lose his life and then to see him on a ventilator and not be able to do a thing about it. It's really hard. We were able to all be together for the last couple hours and Troy passed away that evening about 7.45. The doctors said a KPC patient from the earlier outbreak had probably brought the superbug back to the hospital during a routine follow-up but they were unsure how Troy had come in contact with it. He was the last victim of the KPC outbreak. Do you think KPC is now gone from your hospital? Dr. Tara Palmore. Oh no, absolutely not. I think that, that we have to be extremely vigilant in the, the coming years. The rate of these infections has risen sharply during the past decade. Hospitals are generally not required to report details of outbreaks like this one to the public, but the researchers at NIH believe the lessons are important and must be shared. Talking about hospital infections is really difficult for a hospital because we all know that when you come to the hospital, there are certain risks. But we've now laid bare what are those risks. 
We owe it to those patients to honor those patients by ensuring that this does not happen in another hospital. Deputy Director Dr. David Henderson. If I had a major message, it would be that it's never going to end. This organism and organisms like this are going to be with us. We have to develop new strategies for managing them. We have to change our culture in the hospital. The surprise to me was that he didn't die from the bone marrow transplant, which is what, you know, if, if there was going to be a problem, we thought it would be tied to the bone marrow transplant. We never thought that it would be an infection that couldn't be cured. For more on the trouble with antibiotics, visit our website. Have to be extremely vigilant. And visit our new iPad app at pbs.org slash frontline slash app. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now you can get original short Frontline documentaries, important stories well told. And connect to the Frontline community. Tell us what you think on Facebook and on Twitter. And sign up for our newsletter at pbs.org slash frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Wincote Foundation. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler. Outbreak at NIH was written and produced by Rick Young and Anthony Schultz. The correspondent was David Hoffman. The deputy executive producer of Frontline is Rainey aronson Roth. The executive producer of Frontline is David Fennett. For more on this and other Frontline programs, visit our website at pbs.org frontline. Frontlines, The Trouble with Antibiotics is available on DVD. To order, visit shoppbs.org or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. Frontline is also available for download on iTunes. Mm -hmm.